You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 1 Kings chapter 20 this morning. 1 Kings chapter 20. In chapters 20 through 22, now as we get to close the book of Kings out, there's an emphasis given on these next three chapters of the failure of Ahab. And I'm always amazed as I read through these last portions of Kings that so much time is dedicated to the worst king in Israel. I mean, he is the worst. There's no one worse than Ahab. And yet time and time again we see his name coming up in these last several chapters. Um, I think you'll be surprised in the next chapter of how God will deal with Ahab, the worst king in Israel's history. But for this morning, we find ourselves in chapter 20. And I'm going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to go through 30 verses. Doesn't that sound exciting? Don't get nervous about that. We're going to work our way through. I won't read them all at the same time. We're going to stop and make commentary. So do your best this morning to stay with me and to pay attention. Let's start in 1 Kings chapter 20, starting now at verse number 1. And then Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his hosts together, and there were thirty and two kings with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and warred against it. Now, it's imperative as we read through the text this morning to understand what's happening here, The truth is, the narrator is telling you these facts because he's going to make a point. Here is the king of Syria with 32 other kings with him, and now he is going to attack the city of Samaria. He has horses. He has chariots. That's the equivalent of us today of a tank battalion. Just that you know, this was the ancient tank. This is a massive and mobile fighting force. And the reason he tells us this as we start the chapter is because he wants us to know that what Israel is facing, they do not have a snowball's chance in this fight. There is no way. No way. And it's obvious as you hear Ahab's response to now this army surrounding him. Verse number 2. And he, the king of Syria, right, Ben-Hadad, sent messengers to Ahab, king of Israel, into the city and said, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, Thy silver and thy gold is mine, thy wives also and thy children, even the goodliest are mine. Verse 4, And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine, and all that I have. So Ahab surrounded, and the Syrian king says, I'm taking everything. And Ahab says, no problemo. Not take it. It's yours. And he acquiesces a little too soon here, because look what happens next in verse number 5. And the messengers came again and said, Thus speaketh Ben-Hadad, Although I have sent unto thee, saying, Thou shalt deliver me thy silver and thy gold and thy wives and thy children, 
Yet I will send my servants unto thee tomorrow about this time, and they shall search thine house, and the houses of thy servants. And it shall be that whatsoever is pleasant in thine eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away. I know what I said yesterday, but what I meant by that was this. Tomorrow, I'm sending my servants, and they're going to ransack your place. They're going to go through every closet you have. They're going to go through your drawers, and whatever they see that you like, they're taking with them. And this is now troubling. Verse number 7. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark, I pray you, and see how this man seeks mischief. For he sent unto me for my wives, and for my children, and for my silver, and for my gold, and I denied him not. And all the elders and all the people said unto him, Hearken not unto him, nor consent. Don't, don't do it. Stop. No way. Therefore he said unto the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that thou didst send for to thy servant at the first, I will do. But this thing I may not do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. So they come to Ben-Hadad and said, listen, the first thing you said is fine, but he's not doing the second thing. Ben-Hadad is not impressed. Verse number 10. And Ben-Hadad sent unto him and said, The gods do so unto me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me. And, And what he's saying there is this. He's ticked now. And so he says, I want you to know something. Since you're not going to do what I want you to do, by the time my army is through with you and the city of Samaria, there won't be enough dust. No one's taking a souvenir home from the Holy Land after we're done with you. That's what he means by that. We are going to completely crush you and annihilate you. Now, I find this interesting in the text because maybe this is a testosterone thing. I'm not sure. But Ahab gets this report, and here's what Ahab says back to the king of Syria. Verse number 11. And the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that taketh it off. You think, well, that's a strange thing to say, and it might be in our world. But what he is saying in essence is, don't count your chickens before they hatch. That's what that means in in the Hebrew. Don't count your chickens before they hatch, right? You're saying you're going to crush us, but before you take off your armor, you better wait until we're done with this battle. And it's hubris, and it's arrogant, and it's a man thing, right? Verse number 12. And it came to pass, when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking, he and the kings in the pavilions, that he said unto his servants, set yourselves in array. And they set themselves in array against the city. He says, let's do this. We're going to do this then. Verse 13. And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it unto thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Okay, now I want to stop here for a second in verse number 13, and I want you to notice a couple things. Notice first off, this prophet shows up out of nowhere. Nowhere. 
Ahab, his elders, the nation, never asked for anything. Right? He is unsolicited. They didn't say, let's get a prophet of the Lord. That, that didn't cross their minds at all. He shows up from nowhere. Uh, he is unsolicited. And notice what he says. He says, have you seen the multitude out there? Right? That's Captain Obvious. It, it, I mean, you're surrounded. But thus saith the Lord. And, and, and you may have missed this, but he says this twice. The prophet in verse 13 and verse 14 will say it again. And he says it for a reason. Because when we started this chapter, verses 2 and 5, the messenger comes and he says this. Thus saith Ben-Hadad. Twice he says that. And the prophet of God comes and says, Thus saith the Lord. Twice. There's a reason. Ben says one thing. God says another. Let's see who's going to be right. By the way, this morning, If you're going to listen to voices, whether in our culture, in our world, in your head, on the computer, and they say one thing and God says another, may I humbly suggest that you go with God's word because it will carry the day. We're going to see it in our text this morning. And one more thing to point out in verse number 13. When the prophet comes to Ahab, and Ahab wasn't looking for one, he says that thou may know that I'm the Lord. That word thou is singular. And what he's saying to Ahab is, I'm going to deliver you, the Lord said, I'm going to deliver you that you may know that I'm the Lord. Now, just tuck this away, we'll get there later. But did did Ahab know who Jehovah was? Yes or no? Absolutely. Chapter 18, remember that chapter? He was there on Mount Carmel when God's fire came down. He knew who Jehovah was, and yet the prophet says, God's going to do this so that you, Ahab, might know. We'll get there in a few minutes, all right? So, in, in, in verse number 13, I just want you to think for a second before we move on, because this is really important. Um, I want you to see amazing grace here. And maybe you missed it, but don't miss it. Ahab is the worst king in Israel. He has turned his back on God. Israel has turned their back on God. They weren't looking for help at all. God was not on their radar screen at all. And yet, God in his amazing grace comes to a people who they have rejected him. They had no use for him. Even after all of the evidence of Mount Carmel, they don't go running to God. They refuse him still. And yet, God comes to them. My friend, this is grace. And this grace is amazing. And don't lose sight of that. Because you're going to see it again and again and again. So the prophet comes and said, listen, thus said the Lord. Verses 14 and 15. And Ahab said, by whom? Who is going to deliver us From this army. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. Then he said, Well, who shall order the battle? Who's going to lead them? And he says, You. You. You can almost hear. Can you see it? It's in the text. You are going to do it. Verse 15. Now, this is the mighty army that he's going to assemble. Then he numbered the young men of the princes of the provinces, and there were 232. 
not 200,032. 232. Then he says, and then they, after that they numbered the people, even all the children of Israel being around 7,000. That, that's it. So here's a battle plan, Ahab. You take 232 of your least experienced men, and you get in front of them and lead them to battle. Great plan. Surrounded by the Syrians, surrounded by 32 kings, horses and chariots, tanks going against pitchforks, should work out real well. Verse number 16. And they went out at noon, but Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the pavilions, he and the kings, the 30 and 2 kings that helped him. So here is Ben-Hadad getting a little high with his friends. And he is drunk. And you can see how drunk he is with what he says next. Verse 17. And the young man of the princes of the promises went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out, and they told him, saying, There are men come out of Samaria. Verse 18. And he said, Whether they be come out for peace, take them alive. That makes sense, right? If they're coming for peace, take them alive. Here's the next thing he says. If they come out for war, take them alive. I don't know how that works, actually. When people come out from war, you don't take them alive. They're at war. And so... He's not only drunk, he's arrogant. Verse number 19. So these young men of the princes of the provinces came out of the city and the army which followed him, them, and they slew every one his man, and the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadon the king of Syria escaped on his horse with his horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and smote the horses and chariots and slew the Syrians with a great slaughter. 232 guys go out, they come against 232 guys, and they, each man kills his own man. And so the Syrians flee, Israel pursues, and King Ben-Hadad escapes. Verse 22. And the prophet came to the king. Again, anybody ask for him? No. No. No one's asking about God or his help. The prophet comes. And he said... Go strengthen yourself and mark and see what thou doest, for at the return of the year the king of Syria will come up again unto thee. This is an amazing thing. The prophet comes and says, listen, Ahab, great battle, but I want you to know this time next year, this army is coming back. And he gets it exactly right because here's how the Syrians now are responding to this battle plan. Look at verse number 23. And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this thing. Take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms. And number thee an army, like the army that thou hast lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, and we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he hearkened unto their voice and did so. And so here's what happens. The Syrians say, listen, their God is a God of the mountaintops. That's why they won. But we are people of tanks. We need a valley. We need space. We need to fold the gap to come through with rolling these tanks into Europe. This is what we need. And so what we've got to do now is next year when we go do this, 
Get the army together, and we will defeat them in the valley because their God is only the God of the mountaintop. Right? This is, this is their plan. This is what they say. So verse 26, they're back. They do come back, just like the prophet said. And it came to pass at the return of the year that Ben-Hadan numbered the Syrians, and they went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them, and the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids, but the Syrians filled the country. And again, this is the same example he started with. That, okay, get the picture, the Syrians are back, and Israel looks like two little flocks of goats compared to these Syrians who have filled the country. Again, surround it, and again, here's the implications. There is no chance. Not one chance for Israel to win this battle. Verse number 28. And there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he's not God of the valleys. Therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Notice, a prophet shows up. He is unsolicited. Again, no one asked for him. And notice what he says. Because the Syrians said, well, you're the God of the mountain, but you're not the God of the valley, therefore we'll win this time. God says, guess what? I think I'm just going to deliver that you again from their clutches, and we will win the battle. And notice this time, he says that ye or you might know that I am the Lord. That you is plural. I know you don't care, but it's plural. Now it's all Israel. That you might know that I'm the Lord. Question for you, not a trick question. If Ahab knew that God was God, does Israel know that God is God? Yes, yes, absolutely. They were in chapter 18 as well. But this knowing is clear evidence that God has acted. And they're responsible for this act of grace. No one asked for help. God initiated this. It was was all God. And and not only did he initiate, this was imperative. I wish you could see what what the writer is trying to explain to us here. Two flocks of goats surrounded by a country that is filled with the enemy. This is unbelievable. And so this message to Ahab is imperative because without it, there is no hope. And we see once again that God is introducing his grace to this story over and over and over again. May I suggest this morning that God continually initiates grace into our story over and over and over again. And we, like Israel, we, like Ahab, don't want it sometimes. We don't need it. If you're without Christ this morning, you're okay. I got my own way, my own plan. I've got my own ideas. I got my own religion. I got my own stuff going on here. No thanks. And yet God, in his grace, initiates once again and brings his grace to you. He does it to all of us. Don't need, didn't ask, couldn't care less. Guess what? God shows up. 
in our rebellion, in our foolishness, in our failures, in our brokenness, in our ongoing complacency, in the coldness of our heart, once again, he introduces grace into our lives, into your story and into my story, so that you, so that I, can know that he is God. He has acted. And what he's saying to these children of Israel, and saying to Ahab, and saying to us this morning is this. He's acted by his grace, and we are accountable to respond appropriately. My friend, this morning, if the grace of God has appeared, and it has, the grace of God has appeared, Titus chapter 2, then we as human beings, the only appropriate response is to respond. If God has stepped into your world, if he has displayed grace in your life, you say, well, what's grace? Grace in your life this morning is you're here. You're sitting here. You are under the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is grace, my friend, that you can hear a clear presentation of what it means to be a sinner in need of a Savior, that there is no way, there is no hope, there is only destruction outside of Christ, and you, in simple faith, can repent and believe. It's grace. It is all grace. It's grace. And if His saving help is available... And he has reached out to you. We dare not yawn in complacency and move on. We must respond. This grace ought to awaken us. And our prayer this morning is for the lost and saved, that God's grace would wake us up. Because we're never looking for it. We're doing our own thing. We've got our own ideas. And he steps in, and we see it everywhere around us, the grace of God. Back to finish up our text now, verse number 29. And they pitched one over against the other seven days. And it was that on the seventh day the battle was joined. And the children of Israel slew of the Syrians a hundred thousand footmen in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city. And there a wall fell upon twenty and seven thousand of the men that were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and came unto the city and entered a chamber. The end. And victory for Israel. So, in the last few moments that we have this morning, I want to talk to you now about the undoing of the Syrian army. And I think it might surprise you. The undoing of the Syrian army was this, their theology. Their theology. You've heard from this pulpit more than once on several different occasions from other people. This quote by Tozer. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And this morning... What comes into your mind right now, what really comes into your mind, not taking a Jesus test, where the answer is always Jesus, but what you really think about God in the deepest part of your heart, that is the most important thing about you. Why? Because what you think about God will impact the way you live out your life. If you think of God as some grandfather in heaven who's just trying to stay awake, and he's up there in the rocking chair, a long beard is like, ah then anything goes. If you think of God as a resident of policeman who's out to nail you for everything that you do wrong, well, then it's, it's, it's heaviness. It's, oh, my goodness, I can't do anything right. And so our idea of God and what we really think about him is, is the most important thing about you this morning. And for the Syrians, here's what they thought about the God of heaven. 
They thought that he was everything you always wanted in a God, but less. Everything you always wanted in a God, but less. He was limited. His power was great on the mountaintops, but it didn't extend past that. He wasn't the God of the valley. And the problem with their theology that this God is limited somehow is twofold. Number one, they were wrong. They were dead wrong. And number two, they are now about to face the God that they thought was limited and finally understand that he is not. He's not. Their theology was their undoing. My friend this morning, may we be careful about our own theology. Because many of us this morning are guilty of Syrian theology. Syrian theology, which says God, our God, the true God, is limited. It's the furthest thing from the truth. There are three areas in which we do this this morning. Number one, we believe that God is limited. We put him in a box. And we say things like this. Well, my understanding of God is, can I tell you something? Your understanding of God and my understanding of God doesn't matter. What matters is, what has God revealed about himself through his word is what matters. And so if you say, well, my understanding of God is that he's a God of love, a God of compassion. He forgives sin, but he will never punish sin. Right? Love always wins, and so we don't really have to worry about that. There's a problem with that, because your perception of God is not the God of heaven. Your thoughts about him, you've limited him to a God of love and not a God of holiness or a God of justice, which is problematic because he is a God of love. He is a God of holiness, but this holy, loving God must judge sin. He must judge all sin. And when you put him in this box, you have misrepresented misrepresented him and it's not the God of heaven. So, we put him in a box. My understanding is he's a God of love and mercy, yes. But don't miss out on the God of justice and wrath. Well, he's a God of prosperity, right? He just wants his children to be happy, be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And you put him in that box that, well, yeah, this is God, but whatever I want, whatever I need, name and claim, it's good. Well, there's a problem with that. That thinking is childish. It's immature. We don't see God for who he is, that he takes our pain and our suffering and our heartaches and our trials, and he grows us. Nothing is wasted with him. He uses it. Well, God is just for Sundays and not for Mondays, and this is what I do. Listen, let God be God. Do not put him in your box. In Africa, there's a proverb when it rains. And here's what they say. When it's raining, let it rain. Let it rain. Why? Because it's going to rain. Nothing you can do about it. Hey, let God be God. Don't limit him by putting him in your box. Number two, don't limit him by thinking he's bothered by your weakness and the, the muckiness of your life. Sometimes we limit God by not just putting him in a box, but sometimes we say, wow, he doesn't want to be bothered with, with us. God deals with the big religious things, but he certainly He can't be concerned with the muck and the mess of my life. That's Syrian theology. That's a bad idea because it's not true. This God of heaven, who is big, who is great, who is grand, who is infinite, who is is, um, omnipresent, um, 
omnipresent, 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 oh, I better stop that one. Omniscient, omnipotent, all of those things. He certainly can't be bothered with the muck of my life. And my friend, you've just limited God. You know how this God arrived on our planet? He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born in a sterile hospital bed. He was born in a manger. You know what happens in mangers? You know what mangers smell like? It, it's, it's not a... Any farmers here know about a manger or a crib where, where animals go? Yeah, good smells, right? Awesome. You can eat off the floor there, right? You could. You would die. It's disgusting. It's vile. It's mucky. It's miserable. And here is the God of heaven who we think he can't be bothered with the mess of my life who comes to us in a mucky, messy manger. That's how he's introduced. Think of the last meal. Here is the creator of heaven. And he's washing feet. And it's not like, ah, oh, you've been wearing your socks and shoes all day long. Your feet must smell. That's not what we're talking about. This was in a land of open sandals where men and women walked the roads and everything else walked the roads and dust and grime and sweat and junk and waste and they trudged through those things. And Christ, the night before he was betrayed, did a job that Jewish slaves could not be commanded to do because it would be underneath them for their Jewish master to tell them to do this. And Jesus reaches down and condescends in the weakness and the filth of his own, and he washes their feet. And then think about this fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. And, And so when you think that, well, my mess, my muck, he certainly has wiped his hands of that, you are mistaken because he's entered in. He's walked our side. He knows all about it. And he loved you so much that he became sin for you that we could be made the righteousness of God. We box him in. We think he's bothered. And finally, we think some things are beyond him. Some things are beyond him. Oh, God, you're good on the mountaintop. But in this area, you don't have any dominion here. It's, it's not going to work out here. So that's it. It's beyond you. And we do this. We think it's beyond our God. Some of you folks, you've been praying for people in your families who have been lost without Christ. This church prays for people who are lost without Christ. And sometimes we, in our mind we think, man, they're so far gone. There's just no way. There's no way. I mean, they're really bad. Can I tell you something? God has a habit of taking bad people and cleansing them and saving them. There's a guy named Paul. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before. He was a religious terrorist. Literally. A religious terrorist. And God saved him. Ever hear about Newton? Amazing grace, how sweet. The, a, a slave trader. Ah, they're too far gone. They're not. There is no one who is beyond his saving power. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. You and I included. Or we say, oh my goodness, they're so old. They've heard it over and over and over again. Is there any way possible that God can save them? And the answer is yes, there is. Nothing is beyond his reach. 
there's a story, and I heard it years ago, and I just heard the, the, the real story, and it's even more impressive, about a guy named Luke Short. I wouldn't say Martin Short, but that would be the wrong guy. Luke Short. He was a, a colonist from Virginia. At the age of 17 in England, before he left England, he heard a message by John uh, Flavel, the, the great Puritan. It was a gospel message. 17 years old, heard the message, got on a boat, went to Virginia, and lived there. 85 years later, at 103 years old, he's on his porch, and this thought crosses his mind about a message he heard 85 years ago about Christ. And Luke Short at the age of 103, trusted Christ as his Savior. And here's what he wrote on his tombstone, or had written. He didn't write it. He was dead. You people are, are really critical because um, you are. No, I'm serious. Last week I was preaching. I said, Ken, you wanted a 1998 car your entire life. And someone said, his entire life? How old's Ken? Did he was just born in 1998? You know what I meant. You people are punky. Here's what was written on his tombstone. Here lies a babe in, in grace, age three years old, who died according to nature, age 106. They're too far gone. God, this is beyond you. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Syrian theology, our God is not limited. My past with his scars, my mess uh, in, in its hopelessness, my power to, to overcome my abuse, my addictions, my secret sins, my respectable sins, my broken home, my broken relationship, my broken life, my bondage, my oppression, name it. He has the power to break sin. He can do exactly what he said. I want you to know this morning, that this Syrian theology is dangerous. Do not put God in a box. He does not belong there. He is unlimited. Do not think he won't be bothered with your mess and your situation because he calls us brothers and sisters. He knows about the muck and the mire of our life. And do not believe that there's anything beyond him because there's not. I'm not talking this morning about, hey, go name it and claim it. You know, God wants to give me a fleet of Rolls Royces. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about kingdom living. We're talking about things that are eternal. We're talking about the salvation of men and women. We're talking about transformation in the hearts and lives of God's people. We're talking about kingdom work, that that none of this is beyond the God that we serve. There is no Humpty Dumpty stage with our God. Remember that great piece of literature? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Tragic, actually. Tragic story. Cracked egg. It's terrible. Dave, where's Dave McKinley? Cracked egg. It's terrible. There is no Humpty Dumpty stage with God. At all. Right? Not all the king's horse and all the king's... It's the God of heaven. And this morning, is what I'm telling you is, there is nothing beyond his help. He can... Put it back together again. This is his specialty. He saves sinners. He transforms them. He reconciles them to himself. 
and begins the work of reconciling us to one another. He can save. He can help. He can deliver. And if God's grace is moving your heart and life, don't yawn at it. Embrace it. Don't limit him. Tozer said this, How completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. How completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. And so let me encourage you this morning, throw away your Syrian theology. It was the undoing of that army. It will be the undoing of us. Don't put God in a box. Don't think he won't be bothered. Can't be bothered by you. Uh, Nothing is beyond his help. Let's just close with the words from the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 3, verse 20, he says this. Now to him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.